Would you join me please in Ephesians chapter 6 tonight? We are excavating Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, and as we have done for the last 18 lessons. Let's read verses 10 through 18. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in these verses. I cannot recap it all at this point, but let's acknowledge a few things as we get ready to close out our little mini-series within our series through Ephesians. We are in a spiritual battle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness. And because it's a battle that is not against flesh and blood, we must go into battle in the power of His might and in His strength. And we achieve this by putting on the whole armor of God. With the armor of God, we will be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We will be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, we will stand. And so we are told to stand therefore, and then we are given the armor of God. We must have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. And then for the last two weeks, we've considered the need for the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Remember from last week, we must get to the application level of the Word of God. Just because you have a Bible doesn't mean you have a sword. Just because you know the general theme, the general message of the Bible doesn't mean you have a sword. But once you learn to take the Bible, take its message, and then apply it to your circumstances, you begin to have a sword. Remember how Jesus used the Word of God to counter the temptations of the devil. He didn't just throw out some broad verse that had been memorized because it hung on his wall for the last 30 years. But he had scriptures which countered the attack of the devil very specifically. And so the question was, what area are you being attacked in? You must learn verses and passages which deal with that area of attack. The devil tempted Jesus to turn stones into bread, and Jesus didn't just fire back something random, but he gave the devil, Deuteronomy 8.3, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Jesus understood the target. And he hit back specifically at the devil. He spoke directly to that temptation. 
And we have to learn to apply the Bible specifically on the battlefield. This requires learning the Word of God beyond just basic doctrines of our faith. We must go beyond our statements of faith, for example. Okay, you know what we stand for. Now, what are you doing in your life to help yourself on the battlefield? And our problem is we claim to love this book. We claim to understand our need for it. We claim to understand the power which is contained in it. And yet we spend so little time getting to know it. We must know how to wield the Word of God if we're going to experience victory on the battlefield. And now we've come to verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Prayer to me is such an interesting subject. It's probably inexhaustible. We could do a year-long series right here. I'm going to try to move quickly through this verse. I'm going to try to tie a ribbon over this whole thing tonight and just do some quick hits from verse 18 and leave you with an illustration tonight. The reason prayer is interesting is because there are several words in the Bible in the context of prayer, and they're all different, and yet they're all defined very similarly. For example, 1 Timothy 2.1 says this, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. We find there four different terms that fit this classification of prayer, and yet they're all different Greek words, so they must all be different. There must be a slight difference or else there wouldn't be a different word used four different times. Giving of thanks, I think, is pretty self-explanatory. We know how to give thanks. We understand what that means. The other three are very closely related. In fact, when you look up Strong's definition of the three, you'll find supplication in all three of them <laughs> as far as trying to define them. I think because there are some slight differences, we can maybe try to find those. For me, intercession is a little bit easier to put to the side. I think we can understand that's a little bit different. Intercession is to go between. We can think of Moses when God was going to destroy the children of Israel and He was going to make of Moses a great nation. And Moses went in between God and the people and he interceded on their behalf in prayer. That's an example. In Isaiah 53, 12, it says that Jesus made intercession for the transgressors. Hallelujah. He was in between God and man for us. He was interceding for us. And now the Bible says He's at the right hand of God interceding for us now. But I have found it more difficult to explain the difference between prayer and supplication. Brother DeGarmo covered this fairly recently in our adult Sunday school class. And I didn't have time to ask him which lesson. And I might have been embarrassed too because he would think I wasn't paying attention. He's not in here tonight so we can talk about him. Amen. <laughs> and, um, and so I didn't get a chance to listen to that lesson to get his insight again. So you're stuck with my limited ability. Some see prayer as personal, and others see supplication as for others. Now, the reason I'm kind of taking more time here is because the verse mentions prayer and supplication. 
So some see it as a personal thing for prayer. Supplication would be for somebody else. For example, this verse says supplication for all saints, but it does not say prayer for all saints. That's one school of thought, but I think there are so many verses in the Bible which do say we're to pray for one another that I don't see that that's really the final answer that we should, we should have here. It does not satisfy my curiosity. Some, as I was, maybe I should put it this way, I discovered as I was looking at different commentaries, it's interesting to get commentators' opinions sometimes. Some just avoid it altogether because it is difficult. And those are the ones where I'm like, I know why you avoided that because you don't know. Several commentators that are very well known say the difference between prayer and supplication is this. Prayer is petitioning for good while supplication is praying for the removal of evil. Well, that perked my interest. And it kind of made sense as I thought about the word supplant. I don't know anything about English except how to communicate a little bit. And I don't know if there's the same root there for supplant and supplication. But we know supplant is to take the place of. Supplicate, according to some, has the idea of seeking for the replacement of evil with good. We might say we're trying to supplant evil with good. Others state simply that supplication means prayer continued in strong and incessant pleadings. Till the evil is averted or the good communicated. And I robbed that from Clark's commentary. That's what he wrote. And that is a common position. And like I said, most will just bypass the issue altogether, which is what I'm going to do now. You will be glad to know that I don't know. I don't have peace about it at this moment. And so somebody out there is way smarter than me. Tonight is not the night to enlighten me. It's been a long day. I would suggest that however we define the difference between prayer and supplication, I believe we will find ourselves naturally doing both as we seek to have a right prayer life. Because the verse says here that we are to pray in the Spirit. If you'll pray in the Spirit, then I believe you'll find yourself praying and supplicating. Now, some like to debate on whether or not prayer should be described as part of the armor of God. That's interesting. I, I don't personally see how it can be separated. If you'll notice the punctuation, verse 18 is a continuation. Is punctuation the right word? Verse 18 is a continuation of verse 17. And so I don't see why we should try to separate prayer as part of the whole armor of God. And I'm satisfied that it is part of the armor of God. And therefore, I have no desire to debate with you on whether it is or isn't. And I'm not so much concerned with whether or not you view prayer, whether or not you view prayer as part of the armor of God, so long as we all understand the importance of prayer in every aspect of our Christian life. Before we look at prayer in context of verse 18, let's pause for just a moment to take note of what a privilege it is 
that we can even pray? How is it that we can have direct access to Almighty God? We know it's only through Christ. Through His sacrifice and His shed blood, He has made a way into the holiest of all. The veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. When Jesus cried, it is finished. And when He gave up the ghost. Hebrews 10 verses 19 and 20 say, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us, through the veil, that is to say, His flesh. He is the way. He is the means by which we can pray to God. Because of the sacrifice of Christ and because of His blood, we can now enter into the holiest, we can now enter into the very presence of God, the throne room of God, with confidence and assurance that we will be granted access and that we can pray before God. Wow! What a privilege! I don't think any of us in here tonight could pick up the phone and say, could you get me Donald Trump on the line please? But what if you could? Would you not be impressing your friends? Breck, check this out. Yo, 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 President Trump, what's up? Man, we'd be bragging about that. But what a privilege. We can go to the God who created the President of the United States. Now are we bragging about that to our friends? Amen. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. What a blessing it is to be able to pray directly to God. We don't have to go through an earthly priest. We don't have to check the boxes of religion. But as God's children, we have direct access. Galatians 4, 4-6 through 6 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You see, something amazing happened when we were born again. Before that time, God was only known as God, at best. There was no relationship with God before salvation. But after we came to God in simple faith, seeking for our sins to be forgiven through Christ alone, through His blood, a transformation took place in our life. We were adopted into God's family. And this one who we only knew as God suddenly became known as our Father. He is our Heavenly Father. And we are His children. And there is a special relationship that now exists. And this is what separates true Christianity from religions. Religions pray to appease their God or gods. They pray to seek for protection, but they are constantly kept at a distance. There's no means to approach fully because there's never a sacrifice which is good enough. This is why even those within the, uh, the closer Christian faith of our, of our teaching, we would call them Protestants, even those who are depending upon works ultimately have to say, I hope God is listening. There's no real assurance 
There's no real satisfaction that they can go before God. There's always something. They're always at arm's length. No sacrifice is ever good enough. And all the sacrifices ever do is it keeps the gods from punishing you. There's no close relationship. But in Bible Christianity, the ultimate price has been paid. Hallelujah. Jesus, God in the flesh, came down to sinful man because we can never get to Him. He lived a sinless life and He died in our place to make reconciliation to God so that we can enjoy a personal relationship with God Almighty. And in salvation, God became our Father. Romans 8, 14 and 15 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. You no longer have to view God as this unapproachable, as this unreachable deity. Though He is far greater than we are, and though He is to be greatly feared, I can now in Christ come straight to God because it's as if He's my daddy. And that is in fact what He has become. I can remember Brother First preaching this. Papa. And crawl up in his lap as a son would his father. Hallelujah. I'm his son and he's my father. What a privilege to have access to God tonight. To be able to pray to God. So the question becomes, how much are you taking advantage of when it comes to your privilege of prayer? We have this awesome privilege which Christ bled and died for. And I think we would all recognize tonight the importance of prayer. But how much time do we actually spend in prayer? The first two words in Ephesians 16... In Ephesians 6.18, say, praying always. In Luke 21.36, Jesus said, Watch ye therefore and pray always. Romans 12.12 says, Continuing instant in prayer. Colossians 4.2 says, Continue in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray without ceasing. What does this mean? How are we to pray without ceasing? How are we to pray all the time? Well, this clearly cannot mean a 24-7, round-the-clock prayer meeting with the Lord. We will fall asleep at some point. We will get hungry. We will have to go to work. Life will happen. So what does this mean? The intent must be that we should never give up on prayer. But we continue to pray, and we do so without ceasing. We keep coming back to it as we are able. Prayer is meant to be ongoing. And I'm told that the idea in our text here, in that the word always, is that we are to be praying in all seasons. Whether it's a convenient time or not, we're to be praying. In Luke 18.1, Jesus taught that men ought always to pray and not to faint. In other words, there can come a point where you're getting weary in prayer. What does it say here? Praying always. We're not to grow weary in praying. We're not to faint. And actually, I believe that's what we find in our text. In Ephesians 6.18, it goes on to say, and watching thereunto with all perseverance. That means persistence. We're to stay with prayer. We're to keep at it. We're to be persistent and never give up. Never faint. Never grow tired of praying. 
perhaps you find yourself talking to God throughout your day. I do. That's praying without ceasing. Perhaps there's a prayer request you have yet to receive an answer for. But even after 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you're still praying. That's praying without ceasing. That's praying with perseverance. That's not giving up. Someone said, I don't often pray more than 15 minutes throughout the day, but I rarely go 15 minutes in between prayer. I don't think that's to say you shouldn't have longer times of prayer. I believe we should begin our day in prayer. I like the morning. I think it's the best way to do it. No distractions and it helps us for the day. But as your day goes along, you should still be in prayerful fellowship with God. We're to be praying always. And we see that our prayers and our supplications are to be in the Spirit. We must be Spirit-filled. We saw that last week with Christ using the Word of God. It's called the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And here we're to pray in the Spirit. And so we must be Spirit-filled if we're going to be true prayer warriors. And listen, when it comes to the battlefield, you can't look at this and say, well, I can't swing a sword and I can't pick up this and I can't do what I used to do because my body's breaking down or maybe I'm getting older. Listen, every saint can be a prayer warrior. Every one of you. Now, what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? It's not talking about some charismatic capacity. Praying in the Spirit is not that we pray in some tongue. Praying in the Spirit here is not giving us a type of praying, but it is giving us the only way of praying. Pray in the Spirit. That's the manner in which we're to pray. So we're to pray at all times. Now, why do we pray? One reason would be the Bible commands it. That's simple enough. What should we pray about? Everything. Everything. Is prayer really this important? Does it really help? Well, Jesus prayed. Because what people try to say is, why are we praying when God's going to do what He wants to do anyway? Jesus prayed, and He certainly knew what God was going to do. And I'm not trying to get into a deep theological thing here. I'm trying to keep moving, because we can just stick right in this verse for a long time. The early church prayed. The apostles prayed. Prayer is power. It does work. There's volumes written on prayer. And I don't want to focus on all that right now, but there are examples throughout the entire Bible of how beneficial prayer is. But I am assuming, I'm coming at this lesson tonight assuming that our Wednesday night faithful already agree with these facts. That you know we should be praying. That you know we should be praying about everything. That you know that prayer is powerful. That you know it works. So I'll save all of that for a deeper study on prayer in a future time. But here's what I would say. If anything, we should desire a prayer life because it's how we maintain a relationship with God. Without communications, relationships stagnate. And if it wasn't for the fact that we've been justified, it would die altogether like it does in the human realm. There must be communication. If you don't talk to your spouse, you grow apart. If you don't talk with your kids, you grow apart. And if you don't talk with God, you grow apart. We must pray because it keeps our relationship with God close. Prayer is not to get God to do what we want Him to do. Prayer is not being able to command God to answer our requests as we see fit. Prayer is communing 
with God as a child does with his father. Prayer will at times be asking. Prayer will at times be seeking. Prayer at times will be very desperate. Prayer can and will be a number of things, but prayer ultimately is your relationship with God. So how's your prayer life? If you'll examine your prayer prayer life, you will find out your nearness to God. And I thought about this as I thought about prayer as it relates to battle. That's our context here. We're in a battle. We see that we are to pray always. We're to persevere in prayer or we are to stay persistent in prayer. We are to pray while we are in training. We are to pray when entering the battle. We are to pray during the battle. And we are to pray after the battle. Praying always. We are to have a prayer life. Unfortunately, some will wait until the fiery darts are being hurled at them before they begin to pray. Is everybody with me? Because now we're going to bring it home. They should have been praying well before then. It's called a prayer life, not a prayer whenever we think we need it most. Now, how many of you remember after 9-11, the amount of prayers that were being offered up in this country? It was all over the news channels even. Now, some of that I obviously didn't agree with because there was a bringing together of all faiths, all religions. But there was prayer all over the place. Church houses were packed. Congress was praying. They were singing. It was a whole different vibe was going on at that time. And there was a renewal of some things that lasted for a short time, but it was there nonetheless. You could see these images all over. But why didn't that happen before 9-11? Am I right? Why didn't that happen before 2001? I was stationed here at Ellsworth Air Force Base, and I was a member of this church at that time when the Twin Towers fell. And shortly after the attacks, I was deployed to Diego Garcia in support of our long-range bombers. As a meteorologist, it was my job to brief the bomber crews on the weather they would encounter on the way to the combat zone and certainly how the weather in the combat zone would affect the targets they were trying to achieve. And I had the privilege to brief the bomber crews the first night we launched an attack into Afghanistan. Briefing the B-1s, the B-52s, the B-2s, and even the refueling crews. And once in theater, the entire strike package would come together. They would be from all over. They would all come together, they would sync up, and they would do what America's best Air Force does. And though we were safely located seven degrees south of the equator... I remember the somber mood that night. Everyone present, especially the mood of the bomber crews who were about to fly into combat. And the chaplain got up and he gave his charge from the Bible, which they do before every combat mission. And he prayed over the mission that night. There was a reverence that could almost be felt that night. Though intelligence had a good idea of what our military was about to enter into, there was still an uncertainty 
of all that the Taliban might be capable of achieving. There was this tension over the unknown. Would our crews all come back safely? Well, the opening night of the war on terror was a resounding success. The Taliban's capability was minimal when it came to air superiority. And for six months, I briefed these bomber crews day in and day out, heading north into Afghanistan. But something began to change as time went on. That first night when there was such a reverence and an understanding for the need of God's blessing upon our military, it was slowly replaced with an apathetic attitude as air superiority was easily achieved and the bomber mission transitioned to air support. And for every crew I briefed, I got to observe as the chaplain would give the charge from the Word of God. And despite what you hear, there are some really good chaplains in the military. Chaplain LePac was one of them. He was a Southern Baptist, but he was a good man of God. And he would give the charge from the Word of God, and he would pray for the air crew that night. And I noticed over time that the same crews which were reverent and desirous for God's blessings now are shuffling their papers as the chaplain's talking, going through their flight plan, not paying attention as the chaplain spoke. Before, they had been looking him in the eye, and there seemed to be an attitude of prayer. But now that the heat of the air battle had passed, God's blessing just seemed to be another checklist item they had to accomplish before they could load up and fly. Maybe this is the reason we lost a bomber in the Indian Ocean. Maybe this is the reason we started dropping bombs on our own people inadvertently. Maybe it was because God and His importance was being removed. And I gave you that illustration to tell you this, or that account. I'm afraid this describes us all too often. We go about life just fine without praying to God. We don't spend time with Him. We don't really walk with Him or talk with Him. We aren't really in God's Word like we know we should be. We aren't in church because who has the time? When we are there, we're just checking the box because that's what good Christians do. But we're half in, we're half out mentally. We're tuned in, we're tuned out. Then all of a sudden your world gets rocked by something tragic and your twin towers come tumbling down. And all of a sudden your prayer life is awakened. Your relationship with God comes into focus. You're in the Word of God and you're listening in church. You're living the Christian life again. You're faithful once more. You're zeroed in because you're in the heat of the battle. But as the tide of the battle begins to change in your favor, so you too begin to change. Just as soon as everything calms down, you find yourself sliding back into your same old routine without God. Your prayer life dwindles. Your Bible reading drops off. Your church attendance is enough to prove you're still a member, but you aren't getting anything out of it. You stroll into church late now. You're careful to be late on Wednesday nights because you really don't want to mess with the prayer service. Your Bible gets left lying around. You go about your day 
And you view God as one who's standing by up there in case something happens. When the bombs were falling, you were really dialed in on prayer. You knew that your mission success depended on it. But once the smoke began to clear, and time passed, you no longer sensed the great need for God like you did when you first entered the battlefield. And so here you are tonight. Some of you are here because you're walking with God. Some are here because they want to appease God and they want to keep Him from slamming two jets into their twin towers. How's your prayer life? Are you praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints? You need the armor of God to be successful in your Christian life. And like the hymn writer George Duffield put it in 1858, stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in His strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you, ye dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger be never wanting there. You need the armor of God. The armor of God is Christ. If you haven't gotten that throughout this little mini-series, He is our truth. He is our righteousness. He is our peace. He is our faith. He is our salvation. He is our word of truth. And it is through Him we can pray. We could sum it up by saying this. If you're going to put on the armor of God, you have got to put on the new man. You know what the Bible says? Put on the new man. The Bible says, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. And when you go into battle and you don't have Christ as your armor, that's when the questions come. That's when the difficulties come. That's when the failures come. That's when we, want, we try to understand, why is this all happening to me? What is this I'm going through? I don't understand. Where was your prayer life before then? Praying always. Are you battle ready tonight? Because listen, your battle's coming. Ask some of these gray heads in here that have been through the thick of it, been through cancer, been through the death of a loved one, been through hard times. I've seen this country erode. Are you battle ready? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And then we can go on to do great things for God. Let's pray.